Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our reading for this week, our Gospel, features a parable. A parable that echoes a famous story in the prophet Isaiah. Here's how Jesus begins. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. You know, it's funny, but there's almost the whole of biblical theology in that little line. There was a landowner. He's talking, of course, about Almighty God. As I've often said, God in our tradition is not one being among many. God is not even the highest thing in the world. Rather, God is that creator who brings into existence the whole of finite reality. As the Creed says, he's the maker of heaven and earth. See, but what this means is everything in creation belongs to God. God is the owner of all things. Nothing escapes the press of God's power. He's the landowner. Everything from quarks and atoms to archangels to everything in between, everything on this earth, everything on this planet belongs to God. And there's an enormous shift in consciousness that occurs when we let that sink in. I've often said to you, your life is not about you. Let's true of everything in creation. Nothing belongs to itself. Everything belongs to God. But now the second part of that line. This landowner planted a vineyard. A vineyard. It's a powerful and consistent biblical symbol. And especially for these ancient peoples. A vineyard was a beautiful, luxuriant place. Just a few months ago, I was giving talks out in Oregon, and I drove from central Oregon to the coast, and you go through wine country. You go through this country that's marked by these beautiful vineyards, and they are striking, lovely places. So for the biblical people. They're fecund, abundant, gorgeous, Well, this is what God intends for his creation. When you read those stories of the ancient myths, the ancient gods and goddesses, they're often playing fast and loose with things in this world. They're often very domineering, very aggressive. Not the biblical God. The biblical God wants to create out of a desire to share his life. He wants the world, he wants creation to be a beautiful, life-giving place. Now, as the parable goes on, he put a hedge around the vineyard, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. All those are lovely little symbols. First of all, he put a hedge around it. This vineyard is defined as God's place. Go back to the book of Genesis. The description of the Garden of Eden, paradise, is a kind of walled garden, an enclosed space. The idea is it belongs to God. 
It's his place. What goes wrong with us is when we allow that wall to be broken down. We forget who it is that owns the vineyard. There's a hedge around it. Secondly, he built a tower. A tower that rises above the vineyard, allowing the owner to see all that's going on. Another strong biblical motif that God is not only the creator of the world, but he's the providential governor of the world. God sees all that he's made. God is concerned with every inch and corner of his creation. He builds a tower. But the last detail is my favorite. He dug a wine press in it. God has made a vineyard. Beautiful, fecund, life-giving, yes. But more precisely, a vineyard is where grapes are cultivated. Grapes which will be crushed. The grape juice will be fermented. And this intoxicating drink will be produced. Wine is a very strong biblical symbol. You see it running all through the Old Testament and clearly in the New Testament. It's a sign of the lifting up of the spirit, the intoxication of the mind. It is no accident that the night before he died, Jesus took bread and wine, that he made wine into his blood. Because it's Christ's blood, Christ's life that most intoxicates us, most uplifts our spirits. The hedge, the tower, the wine press, they're all expressive of what God intends for his creation to be his place, defined as such, watched over by his providential care, and existing for our uplifting. The glory of God. Is a human being fully alive? That's what God wants. The story goes on. Then he leased it to tenants. We could develop an entire theological anthropology out of that line. That's a fancy way of saying an account of who we are in light of Revelation. He leased it to tenants. It's because God is the creator of the whole universe that God can't possibly sell off anything that he owns. It's God's, inescapably. It has to be. No one else can own any part of God's creation. But God, listen now, is willing to lease out this territory. He wants us to participate in his life. He wants us to participate in his providence. And so he leases out his territory to tenants, again, not owners. We are the holders, the tenants of God's creation. What goes wrong with us? A good deal of sin flows from the fact that we forget that it is leased to us and that we are its tenants. The minute we start saying, my money belongs to me, my health is for my benefit, My wealth, my reputation, my power, they're mine. They belong to me. I own them. No, you don't. Everything in nature, everything in the cosmos, everything that you have and do belongs to God. It exists for God. You are a tenant of it. Fine. It's been leased to you. Okay. But don't delude yourself into thinking that you own it. What was Adam and Eve's problem? They grasped 
at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They tried to own it. God gave them free run, practically, of the Garden of Eden. As long as they realize it's God's garden, they are the tenants of it. The story goes on. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to obtain his produce. Again, what we produce on God's land, on God's time, with our God-given lives, what we produce, our wealth, our careers, our success, our degrees, our titles, all of it finally belongs to God and should serve God's purpose. What goes wrong? I forget this principle. I forget that every breath I take is from God and for God. I forget that every degree that I've ever earned is from God and for God. I forget that my family is from God, therefore for God. How wonderful here now in terms of the story that the owner sends his servants to collect his produce at the end of your life. When God comes to collect his produce, will you be willing to give it? Will you be willing to acknowledge his lordship over everything you have and do? Now, in Jesus' telling of the story, these servants have a very definite sense. They're meant to symbolize the prophets and the patriarchs. What's the Old Testament? It's the story of God continually trying to teach this lesson to his people. When they are deluded into thinking that their lives belong to them, he sends the prophets. He sends the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and all the rest to remind them that this is produce that belongs to God. But what's the response? Listen now. But the tenants seize the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. Wow, it's a brutal picture, isn't it? Brutal, but accurate. God sends his servants, his prophets, his spokesmen. Do the people readily say, yes, I agree, you're right. All this belongs to God. My life's about God. Christians, we don't like to be reminded of this fact. We just don't. We resist it all the way to our bones. We resist it. And we don't just hold off these servants of God. Listen, one they beat, another they killed, the third they stoned. Boy, the violence of our reaction when God tries to lure us back into right relationship. Story goes on. Finally, he sent them his son, thinking they will respect my son. Here's the landowner. He's been sending his servants, but they've been killed and beaten. They've been stoned. So finally, in desperation, he sends his own son. I'm sure they'll respect him. Well, of course, this is a directly Christian reference, isn't it? God so loved the world that in the fullness of time, he sent his only son, that those who believe in him might find life in his name. Yes, he sent the prophets. He sent that whole array of servants, that whole stream of witnesses. But finally, after they'd all been rejected, he sent his own son, his own life. This is the story of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? To remind us that this belongs to God. 
He's built a hedge around it. He's put a tower in it and a wine press. That all of it exists for God and that we find life in the measure that we acknowledge it. But what happened? When the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. This is not quite as crazy as it seems. This was part of Jewish law at the time. If there were tenants and there were no heir to the uh, estate, they had a right to claim it. And so brutally, it says, they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Here's Jesus, seized at the Garden of Gethsemane, led finally out of the city of Jerusalem, and there crucified. This is a direct reference to the crucifixion of the Lord, God's only Son. But this is how we responded to him. There's something terrible, Christians, about this parable, and it's meant to give us pause. Do you know what I mean? It's meant to remind us, how have we treated the messenger sent to us by God? Above all, the messenger who is Christ. Do we respond or do we kill him? Just a last thought now. After Jesus' death, he was buried in a new tomb, and the tomb was found in a garden. How wonderful that it's from that garden tomb that he rises from the dead. What did Christ come to do? To remind us of who we are? Yes. But even when we rejected him, he was buried in a garden. He was buried in a place reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, and it was there that new life came forth. We find even when we reject God's love, more love. Even when we take him out of the city and we kill him, we find in this high paradox of the divine love, more charity. Listen to this parable, feel its pain, but also take courage from God's great love. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.